Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is voiceover artist Andrew Peters. But first of all, Spotify is making hardware. Yeah, they're going to be making a voice controller for the car, and reportedly it will be called Spotify Voice. It's going to sync via Bluetooth, and supposedly it has preset buttons on it that correspond to playlists. This is going to retail, again, reportedly, for around $100. Now, when I look at this, I think, wow, this is a response to Amazon. One of the things that's really pushed Amazon Music forward is voice activation, voice control. What ended up happening is, since Echo came out, and Echo Dot and all the variations, Amazon Music has really done well because... They believe, and I think it's probably true, of voice activation. So Spotify sees this, and Spotify is going to try the same thing, only in the car. Now, I'm wondering if this is a good idea. If people are actually going to spend another $100 just so they can talk to Spotify, I can usually get what I need done via Siri and Apple CarPlay, at least in my car. But on the other hand, if you have an older car... It doesn't have that type of interface, then this might be right up your alley. So we'll see what happens. Some companies that provide services are not good at doing hardware. Google, for instance, every time Google comes out with a hardware product, it just doesn't seem to take off. Their online services are great, but they haven't gotten a handle on hardware yet. It's much more difficult than you'd think. So let's see what happens with Spotify. No timetable on when it's due except sometime in 2019, and it might even roll out first in India, of all places. That'll be the beta test. Spotify is only now launching in India, so it might be a good test bed for them. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's something exciting for everyone that's listening. If you have tinnitus, like I do, a group of researchers from the University of Michigan have found that with the combination of earbuds and stick-on electrodes, they can slowly train the brain to tune the ringing out. And what they found in a double-blind test is that most users got up to 12 dB of reduction of the tinnitus And there were actually a few where it was completely gone. But the big thing is, no one got worse. Now, you may think, what is this exactly? Okay, this works on nerve activity and not on any kind of physical damage. It's not invasive. It just works on nerve activity. So with the earbuds, it sends a tone out that matches the frequency and volume of the tinnitus. And then it applies small impulses. You have to wear this for 30 minutes a day but it looks like it works. Problem is, this is still just in research and it's not commercial yet. So, all of you tonight as sufferers, I share in your suffering and we have to wait a little bit longer before some help arrives. 
My guest today is Andrew Peters, who started as a popular radio personality and eventually transitioned to television as a host of Australian music shows like Rock Arena, Tracks, Simul Rock, the Live Aid broadcast, and an interviewer for the MTV special Australian Made. After 20 years on radio and television, he became a full-time voiceover artist, and he's become one of the top voice actors in Southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. His voice is heard by millions every day as the current network voice for Channel News Asia, Dubai I 103.8, Radio M Classic Rock, and on numerous television, radio, and corporate spots. In the interview, we talked about Andrew losing his North London accent in order to get a job in Australian radio. We also talked about making the transition into television, the learning curve required for voiceover work, some cool voiceover tricks, the difference between Australian and American home studios, and much, much more. Andrew and I spoke via Source Connect Now from his home in Australia, where it was truly a pleasure to listen to his big, booming voice. So, Andrew, tell me how you got into the business. Actually, you know what? Let's go back to the beginning. You're from the UK. Where are you from? Um, I grew up in Hertfordshire in the UK, um, so slightly north of London, and um, oh. which was an issue when I came to Australia, but we'll probably cover that after because uh, accents are an issue, or certainly were an issue in this country when I got here. But uh, I grew up in Hertfordshire, um, born in the late 50s, uh, two older brothers, so I was exposed to uh, a lot of music through the 60s. Uh, of course, you saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I saw the Beatles on uh, Sunday night at the London Palladium, which was the uh, weekly entertainment show. Uh, that was their first television appearance from memory. Um, but I was never really a fan of the Beatles, I have to say. One brother was and one wasn't. So I had a mod and a rocker in the house. Uh, so one rode a motorbike and one rode a Vespa. Um <laughs> So uh, so there's a good mix of music in there, but I preferred the uh, the motorbike kind of music. So I was more into the Stones, um, Small Faces, even though they were kind of probably more mod than uh, rockers. But um, I just, I didn't really get the Beatles. It's, it's a funny thing. And I, I didn't really get into the Beatles until probably a decade ago. Um, once I was, it was like looking back and listening to them with fresh ears and an adult brain, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what what the difference is, but I certainly wasn't attracted to them in the beginning. Were you getting into radio when you are in the UK, or did that all happen after you moved to Australia? That was when I moved to Australia. So that's where the accent was an issue, because I came here in 1974. I was hoping to stay in the UK, but my parents decided they wanted to move to Australia. My brother, my eldest brother, had moved here a few years before. And, uh, and I was at that sort of, I'm leaving school, I'm 16, I want to go to art school, they want to come to Australia, you know, what do I do? So, you know, and it's, and it's difficult because back then, it's not like now where you jump on a plane and 24 hours later you're on the other side of the planet. Um, it was a bit more taxing and certainly more expensive back then. So we boarded ship and a month later arrived in Adelaide. And uh, and then I did a, a bunch of different jobs. I met a guy on the ship who was a butcher, so I worked with him for a year, and then uh, that didn't work out. And then I ended up working for a guy we used to call One Coat Reno, who was the um, house painter, um, <laughs> <laughs> and worked with him for a year. That was actually really good. I enjoyed that. It was fantastic. Um, you know, working on building sites and hanging out with guys. It was good. Um, I then got 
fed up with being dirty, so moved into sales, which was probably a really good grounding for what I'm doing and what I ended up doing. Um, because as as you know, like most of what we do is there's certainly a, a major part of its uh, or component is sales orientated. Yeah. Um, so and then I, I but I'd always been into music. When I was a kid, I I turned my wardrobe into a a little um, radio studio and played records in there and listened to Radio Luxembourg and loved music. I was into you know Roxy music and Sparks and Slade and all different you know different uh, music. So and because I can't play anything, the only thing I could ever play, the only instrument, was a turntable. So the logical choice for me was because I loved music, couldn't play an instrument, was get a job on a music radio station. And um, so I found a guy in Adelaide who said, yeah, I'll, um, I'll put you through radio school, but you've got to lose that accent because you'll never work, huh. you'll never work with that. And because um, I had a North London accent, so I talked a bit like that, you know what I mean? And... Um, and so we did, and it was. Uh, it took three months, which was, when I think about it, was quite amazing. So I'd gone from a North London accent to an Australian accent, and within three months was working in a, on a regional station in um, Australia. Wow. That's fast, isn't it? That was very quick. And I was actually, I worked because country radio, as we call it here, um, some guys you, you, do, you know, used to do years, like four or five years before they got a, um, a city gig. And I did two uh, two years in the country. I did one year doing nights in a small town and then a bigger, bigger city. And um, I did breakfast and then um, got poached and headed back to Adelaide and uh, worked there. And it was at the time when FM radio um, began, commercial FM radio in Australia, which was quite late. It was 1980. And I heard, oh, yeah. I, and I heard it and I thought, that's where I want to be because it was very cool music with a you know heavy huge playlists fantastic was there actually playlists or or was it fairly open because here in the states when fm radio became commercial one of the best things about it and it'll probably be never reproduced here is the fact that it was open to the dj to decide what to play and as a result the audiences tuned in for the dj's tastes yeah it didn't happen here we were pretty heavily formatted uh, in fact, we were extremely formatted. Um, I can remember being threatened <laughs> to be fired um, because I f- discovered this new act called Katie Lang and yeah. uh, and the reclines and uh, with the song Turn Me Around and I thought, this is fantastic. So um, I played it out of the four o'clock news and uh, after my shift, I was called into the office like, don't don't ever do that again. Don't, don't pl- do you play that song again. And, you, you know, you do that again, you're fired. And, of course, red rag to a bull. And um, so the next day I came out the news and said, oh, yesterday I played this great song and I was told if I played it again, I'd be fired. So let's see what happens and played it again. And, um, yeah, I was in a bit of trouble, I must admit, but uh, <laughs> it's a great song. But, uh, yeah, so that, that, was, uh, that, that was my radio days and also working on in television. So after two, three years of working... Um, in City Radio, I got a call from a TV producer, a guy called Chris Noble, and he had just got the ABC, which is our national broadcaster, to approve this new music show that was going to be on a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock, and it was like an alternative music show. So we had the Sunday night, you know, pop show, the countdown show, 
um, which had a massive audience, but they wanted something for, you know, the people who are into alternative music. And I got a call, did the audition for the TV show and, and got the job. And uh, that was horror. I still remember being horrified, being on set for the first time. Uh, it's very intimidating when you've got, you know, you're in a television studio with a handful of cameras and people everywhere and makeup and lights. And, and then we, and uh, to make it even worse, we actually uh, recorded live to tape. Uh, wow. Um, using, you know, the old paper auto cue, which continually got jammed, you know, and you just see a hand coming across the screen trying to get the auto cue back, uh, you know, back in, um, back where it should be. But, uh, wow. But that was a great show. I really enjoyed that. was probably one of the highlights of, of uh, my um, career. I must admit, I, I loved that show. You did stuff for MTV, right? I got uh, a call from MTV, and it was uh, when there was an Australian-made concert. And it was to showcase Australian music, and it went nationally um, around Australia. It was huge. It had, like I think, probably 10 bands or something. And um, I got a call from one of the uh, producers from MTV in New York saying, look, we want someone to do interviews uh, of all the, the bands. And uh, would you do it? And I was like, yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. So I did that. Uh, and that went out one Thursday evening in, in New York, or nationally out of New York. And a friend actually called and said, yeah, watched you on TV last night. I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, that was my only touch with MTV in the US, unfortunately. But your television career went on for quite a while, right? Yeah, I jumped from uh, the national broadcaster, which is the government-owned broadcaster, into commercial television and then did a few, maybe another handful of years uh, working for commercial networks and did quite a lot of that. Then when I eventually did leave radio, which was in the late uh, 90s, 97, and television had finished in the late 80s, uh, I moved from Sydney to Melbourne and uh, decided that I wasn't going to do radio anymore and thought, you know, it's time for a change, and um, how about voiceovers? So that was when I jumped uh, across to what I'm doing now. Well, I want to talk more about that in a second, but I'm curious. So did you burn out in radio? Was that it? Did you feel like you aged out, or what was the reason why you decided not to do it any longer? It, it, became, it became a very, um, it wasn't a particularly nice culture, I have to say. And... Um, Things were going really well for me. When I was in Adelaide, things were, I was on, on fire, basically. That was the peak of my career. But I didn't actually get on particularly well with management, which is, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, an issue. And uh, so it came to a, a crashing halt at that point. And then I moved to Sydney to work for another a big station there. And it was like, okay, well, you're going to be you know, the new drive guy when this one goes which I thought was fantastic, you know, drive in Sydney, great, big, the biggest market in Australia, lovely. And it never happened, and I was there for about two years. I bought a house, relocated, and it just didn't work out. And then uh, eventually that, that it came to a grinding halt, and then um, I ended up moving to Perth on the other side of the country and uh, worked there for about four and a half years. But the station was crashing, and... Um, I just didn't want to go down in the ship, you know. So uh, I quit and went back to the UK for a, a, quite a few months. And I'd met um, a few people who had been traveling. Bob Geldof used to come to Perth and do a, a drive show for a week. 
every year. And uh, we kind of got on quite well, and I said I was moving to the UK, and he said, okay, when you get there, call me. And and I remember sitting down having coffee with him, and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'll try and get a job in um, radio here. He said, well, what what have you got to offer? I went, "Um, me? He goes, (laughs) yeah, but what are you, what, it's going to make them want you. Um, Me? He said, well, I think you better go away and think about this, and... um, which I did, and he was quite right because I didn't go with any plans at all, and it just never worked out. So I came back to Australia and uh, ended up back in Sydney doing a satellite radio um, station, and uh, I just it was just it was gone. The magic had gone. I did I, you know just began to hate it. So so it was time to get out. You know. Yeah, I can understand that. I'm curious when you moved back to the UK, was there a bit of a culture shock that happened to you. And I'm talking about both business-wise and otherwise. You know, because I, I would think that you're used to living in Australia, which is one complete way of living that's way different than the UK. Seems to be slower, nicer. Yep. And people seem to be nicer from what I've discerned anyway. And uh, again, just the the whole culture around the business is different. So what did you experience? Well, I'd been to the UK twice looking for work. This was the second time. The first time I went there, which was a shock, I went to the BBC and met with a guy there who was their program controller for Radio 1. And uh, it was the most bizarre meeting I think I've ever had. Um, first of all, it was like he wouldn't tell me how much anyone got paid. And if I did get a job, how much I get paid, I had to guess it. <laughs> Um, and then I went to the studios and looked around and they, they just installed these amazing turntables. And this was 1986, I think. And I'm looking at it going, what, why are they having, why are they installing turntables? Everyone's gone playing CDs. I don't, this is bizarre. So it was all very strange. So that didn't work out. But in the mid nineties, a lot of Australians had moved to the UK and were programming radio stations. Richard Branson had employed one of the programmers out of Sydney that I'd worked with to set up the Virgin Radio uh, station in London. Um, so that was where I was kind of hoping I could get in. Uh, but I did end up talking with a, a, a radio station, had a meeting with them at Jazz, um, trying to talk to them about how, because the licenses are really strange there. You, you get a Jazz license and that's it. You can't play anything else and you can't change format. Um, mm. So I was talking to them about why don't you look at all the, you know, sort of popular songs that have a jazz beat? So get a musician and a lawyer and then, boom, you know, you can play Sting, Sade, yeah. all sorts of stuff. But that didn't happen either. So, yeah, it didn't work out. And and um, and the culture is different. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't mind it. And I, I've sort of got a foot in both camps. So I, I didn't find going back there strange because it's where I grew up. So I don't, I don't see it as an alien place. Okay, so you're back in Australia now, and you decided to get in the voiceover business. What was the transition like for you? Was it something that was easy for you to do? And I'm sure the voiceover part of it isn't, after you've worked in radio, you've been doing that anyway to some degree. But in terms of getting into the business end of it, must have required a different headspace. There's two things that happen, I think. One is if you worked on radio, you, for some peculiar reason, you think you can do voiceovers, and that's not true. The other thing is you have an agent, which 
you know, very few people in radio ever have. So you, you are reliant on your agent finding work for you. But then some people become too reliant on waiting for their agent to find work. And that was another learning curve, getting into to voiceover. I realised one of the early jobs I went to, when I walked in, I, there were a couple of uh, talent coming out. And it was like, oh, you know, see you, Abby, see you, Matt, see you, you know, whoever. And I thought, okay, how do I shortcut this? They know those people, but they have no idea who I am. So how do I make them know me and do it really quickly? So um, I uh, employed a uh, photographer and I said, look, we're going to do that. We're going to make the early CD demos because cassettes are just finished. I want to make a CD, but I want you to think, if this was an album, what would you have as an album cover that has to, and I'm a solo artist, what would you put on there? So we shot these photographs. I had the the slicks made for the, the CDs. I had the slicks made for the VHS videos at that time. Um, headshots, everything, and drop those to every studio that I knew and every ad agency that I knew. And that was an absolute shortcut because I'd walk in, that the, my CD would be on their desk, be like, oh, that, that face, that face. Oh, it's Andrew. Yeah, hi, Andrew. Take a seat, be with you shortly. So that was, that was, um, that was one of the things that helped a lot. But as far as uh, the, the actual, uh, actually doing voiceovers, Man, you, you, you learn that's a baptism of fire when you get in the studio and learning the etiquette of voiceover. Because the first first thing that went through my mind was, you're paying for an hour, so I better give you an hour's worth. Not realising that they don't want me there for the hour. They want me there for as short a time as possible because you're just I'm just chewing up cash by hanging around. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah. That was another valuable lesson. Andrew, you made a comment earlier that I'd like to explore. You said everybody that thinks they're in radio thinks that they can do voiceovers. So what is different then? It's a different way of communicating. When you're a jock, you very rarely are particularly you. Uh, A lot of it's hypey, you know, jock talk. But when you're doing a voiceover, a lot of this is conversational, it's intimate, it's, you know, one-on-one kind of... It's a different different way of using um, the way you communicate. Uh, it is much more intimate doing voiceover, which I'm sure some radio people would disagree with. But um, <laughs> you know, radio is a different. It's a different beast. You know, you're an entertainer. Yeah. You're up there. It's basically you're up there singing. Where when you're doing voiceover, you're in there acting, and that's probably the difference. How long did it take you to get a handle on that? I had to learn pretty quickly because. Um, that's the only income I had. So it was a, a, an absolute learning curve. And, a, and I was lucky that I worked with some really good people who taught me some fantastic tricks. Really, like, bright... Directors or other voiceover artists? Directors. Yeah. And there were some really, really weird tricks that you would think, how does that work? But, you know, you're constantly falling over something or you're just not getting something right. And it'd be a thing like... Just cross that, you know, take out that letter and, and write it upside down <laughs> and then have another crack at it. And, of course, you're, as soon as you get to that point, your brain all of a sudden changes. It's looking, what's that? And refocuses everything and bingo, you've solved the problem. Another thing that was uh, to articulate well if it's quite a wordy piece of copy is to almost purse your lips 
it actually makes what's coming out of your mouth much cleaner and more articulate by pursing lips, which is another Mm. bizarre trick. Well, let me ask you something about copy. Now, I've found that, and I'm sure it's true, that things that read well on the paper don't necessarily speak well. True. But yet, I'm sure you have people that are writing copy for you that don't understand that. Is there some sort of leeway or freedom to change things if you have to in order to make it speak better? Hopefully, if you're in a session and you have a really good audio engineer, they will make that happen. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck with what you've got. And and it's funny with copy. You can look at copy and it just looks like copy. The only time you find out that it's not right is when it doesn't work and you, you're mm-hmm. stumbling. The best copy, you you know, you know when you've got great copy when you just it just flows out, it just comes out. That's great copy. And I and I, I could put two bits of copy together and I, I couldn't tell you why one works and one doesn't. But as soon as you start reading it, you just know, you just feel it. It just works. Is there something to the punctuation that's used and how it's used that makes it easier? And the reason why I say that, Andrew, is because when I do voiceovers for one thing or another here, it's usually some of my product that I'm doing, my courses or whatever, I find that a comma in the right place will make all the difference because it, it indicates to me that you should take a breath here. And if you have to actually lay in another part, you can do it fairly easily. Uh, yeah, I, because I think what when you see a, a piece of, like if you read a book and the punctuation's correct, that works really well with a book. But when you're reading copy, there's a different kind of punctuation. And sometimes you have a half a beat somewhere, which if it was a piece of written word, you wouldn't put it there. But it just makes more sense when you're saying it. Um, it's all about the, you know, and the, and the other thing is giving air. You know, it's like sometimes that, that piece of air between those two words makes those words really powerful. Hmm. Uh, there's nothing worse than someone with copy that's just overwritten. And then they wonder why it doesn't have the emotion they were hoping for. Where in actual fact, the you know, it's the old less is more theory. You can You can make some amazing statements using very little words, but a ton of emotion will come out of it. Like you just did. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what is the one thing that most people don't know about voiceovers and voiceover actors? Well, it's funny. Even people who do it, everyone's got their own skill base. And the smart ones are the ones who have a knowledge of just about all of it. Uh, I always work on the 80-20 rule of, uh, you know, 20% talent and 80%, well, BS, basically, which, you know, it takes into consideration everything from selling and selling and marketing and all that kind of stuff. I think I, I, I don't know whether a lot of people, especially in this country, understand the relevance of home studios that hasn't really taken off the way it has in the US, uh, which I find interesting, and I, and I don't know quite why. There is a fear, uh, and, and there is a, you know, and I think sometimes Australia, uh, for some reason, is a fearful country. You know, people don't particularly like change, you know, and that, that doesn't help. The fear of what, is it the perception that maybe because you're doing it at home in your own studio that it's not professional? I think it's probably more we're doing it from here, therefore you're taking work away from me, which I kind of understand uh-huh. because in the old days you'd have to go into a, a studio. So 
if someone wanted to do an ISDN from Sydney to Melbourne, um, the client was in Sydney and the studio was in Melbourne, I would go to the studio in Melbourne, who would then do an ISDN link to a studio in Sydney, uh, so the client could be on the session, you know. Yeah. So there's two studios getting money out of this. Now, of course, if you've got a studio like this, then I just beam into wherever. And in some cases, like a lot of my clients, I don't even talk to them. In fact, some I've never even talked to. Um, hmm. I just get copy and, you know, everyone's happy with the way I'm doing it. And that's it. It just comes in. Are you still getting work through an agent? Yeah, I've got uh, an agent in Sydney which is Scout Voice Management, and then um, I'm not signed to an agent in the US, but um, Abrams in New York uh, send me things from time to time. Uh, a lot of my clients that are overseas, uh, I look after myself, and that's um, Channel News Asia out of Singapore. So I'm the, their um, network voice, and um, a radio station in Dubai called Dubai Eye, I do, and then uh, local radio stations or networks, the Triple M network here for their regional stations, and there's 32 of those. Um, I'm the brand voice of that. And then whatever else comes in, corporate narration stuff, whatever, all sorts of things, events, you know, you name it. I'll take it. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Is there something that you don't want to take or you turn down? And I say this only because maybe it's not fun or it's, um, and, and fun meaning it's a lot of work, or unnecessary hassle. Does that happen to you? Uh, yes, there are things that I feel uh, that I don't, I wouldn't do, and um, but it's difficult because you kind of go, well, how, how, where do you, where do you draw the line? Do I say I don't want to do McDonald's because I think their food is bad for people, or do I say I don't want to do uh, a read for a fuel company? I mean, where where do you where do or palm oil company? I mean, where do you draw that? This is the trouble. Where do you draw the line? I think you've just got to, on the day when it comes in, if you feel strongly enough that something is wrong, inherently wrong, then don't do it. But I'm sure there's plenty of people that were doing um, politicals in the U.S. that were reading stuff that they didn't feel comfortable doing, but they did it anyway. You're talking about from a moral standpoint. I'm wondering if there's something because of the client being the hassle or the way of working, the physical way of working, perhaps. You know what? It's funny with clients. If there's a client that I find obnoxious, and we've all had them, um, I've always I've worked on the, 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 the mantra that I'm going to make that person like me. No matter how hard this is going to be, by the end of this, they will like me. And that pays because... They, 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 their obnoxious side disappears and you could have a really good client that will come back to you year after year. I like that. But as far as um, at work, no, I don't, I don't usually turn much down at all. I mean, I, because it, I like doing different things. If you get stuck doing the same thing over and over, it gets really boring. Uh, and some things are a bit of a challenge, but, you know, that's okay. I don't mind a challenge. Andrew, how do you take care of your voice? I don't. <laughs> I probably do. Well, I don't smoke, so that's a good thing. I used to, but that was many, many years ago. I don't think you're supposed to drink alcohol, but uh, well, that's certainly something that I do do. 
I don't do any vocal exercises. I probably sometimes eat the wrong foods, you know, like um, lactose foods are not particularly good when you do this. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't really, I don't really do anything. I know that people do do vocal exercises, but I must admit I don't. Uh, maybe I should. I don't know. It's interesting. I was just reading something about the myths of taking care of your voice. And this is mostly for singers, but something just popped up here when you said lactose foods. And it turns out that the problem with that is not the fact that it's not the lactose, it's the fat in it. And that's what causes the problem. It, and it, what it will do is it will thicken the mucus on your vocal cords. Yeah. There is a, there is a thing that I have done from time to time, and I did it a while ago when I had a, an issue with something. I can't even think what it was now. But it's called uh, sirening. And it's the Astill method. I think it's Joe jo Astill. She was, um, uh, she was a, a vocal person who was doing, you know, like vocal exercises. And it was to do with the vocal cords. It must have been because that she had, I'm guessing, that she'd actually seen one of the first cameras, you know, down the back of the throat mm-hmm. and actually seen the vocal cords and how they work. But the thing about this, um, is it signing? Yeah, I'll have to check it out now. Um, but it's it's low impact. So a lot of people used to go, la, 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 you know, make lots of noise and th- thought that was working. Or in actual fact, that actually did more damage. But this is making a sound like Elmo, where you put on a ridiculous screen, push the, your tongue at the back of your throat, and then just exhale. It sounds like Elmo. Um, it's very little air coming out but it just cleans all the debris off the vocal cords. So that's a good exercise. Wow. First time I ever heard that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I'm sure, yeah, Joe Steele, I think her name is. It's worth having a look on, on online. Check it out. Yeah. Okay, how about real-time casting? Well, that was a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was sitting here in Melbourne, and years before I'd um, come up with this thing, I'd been out to casting for acting jobs and I watched the process of how they worked you go in for the casting then you go back for the audition and they record everything on VHS tape and then it was express post off to the whoever um, and I, I thought this is such a laborious waste of time and uh, there was a couple of techie guys I knew and I said I wonder if there's a way where we could actually beam video onto people's computers from a different location. So you've got the ad agency or the producer of what it, the film or TV show. And then the casting director has a camera that is then beaming the pictures to their computer. Can we do that? And they're, ooh, I've never heard of such a thing. So anyway, we experimented and we eventually uh, managed to um, get pictures going from one room to another on a computer. And this is long before Skype. Uh, but we just ran out of cash and, you know, it just kind of went nowhere. And then years later, and I'd already registered the name Real-Time Casting, and then years later I got a, um, a job sent to me via one of the online uh, casting sites. And uh, it, was, it came via the casting site in the US from Sydney, and it was for a corporate narration which would pay here 450 or whatever it was at the time. And the guy was offering like 50 bucks or whatever. And he contacted me directly through the site. Anyway, so I sent him a note saying, look, you, you know, there's no way I'm going to work for that. And you, you know, you're, you're in Sydney. It was a Sydney University guy. And I said, you know, you want to be really careful because you're going to get black banned. It's a small industry here. And they don't like that sort of thing. And 
Anyway, that sort of exploded into this absolute argument and threats from all over the place. And I sat down after that and thought, I've got an idea for this real-time casting name. Let's do a union-based voiceover casting service. So we're giving the union talent the same tools that the non-union talent have had for a few years. So I, I rang the guys, the tech guys again and said, can we do this? Yep. So we built this thing and then we um, went off to see the union here and talked to them about what was happening. They had no idea what was happening in the States, which surprised me. Um, so, and we kept building the site. And then I was, I linked up with a guy called Jim Kennelly in New York, who had a, he's got a studio there called Lotus Productions. And uh, we were doing an audition or whatever we were doing, I can't remember. And we had a bit of a chat and he said, you know, do you do anything else apart from voiceovers? And I said, no, 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 this is my thing, but I'm building a um, a union website for, for casting talent. And he said, uh, well, we could probably do with something like that here. I've been thinking about the similar thing. And I said, well, I, I thought you guys were the guys who were, you know, on the race to the bottom with rates. And he said, no, 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 there's two, there's two camps here. There's union, non-union, and there's, uh, you know, the race to the bottom and the people trying to hold on to the industry. So then we connected and he got involved with the business and then I ended up shifting the whole focus of real-time casting to the US because I thought there's no point sort of trying to, you know, as they would say, build a wall uh, down here. It's better off going in there and um, trying to uh, go head on. And so I did. So it was Jim... Uh, myself and um, and uh, Glenn Millen, who's a guy from down here in Australia. Um, off we went, and we had meetings with the uh, with SAG. Um, talked to them about what we were doing. Would you support us? Uh, yeah, um, you know, maybe. Um, and then we saw all the agents in New York, all the agents in um, LA, and off we went. But the thing, we just never got the marketing to work. And um, and that was unfortunate because we you know we weren't making enough money to bring people in, and we didn't have enough money to bring them in, and then on the hope that we did make money. So it got to a point where it just drifted, 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 and then last year or earlier this year, um, Jim had gone. It was just basically me and a developer guy here. I said, look, just let's get rid of the no payments. Let's just make the thing completely free. Anyone wants to join, great. It's going to be just a, a search engine for anyone looking for voices and that's kind of what we've done um what will happen with real-time casting in the future i have no idea i've got some ideas but i don't know whether they'll happen or not but if anything does happen it'll be great <laughs> because it's certainly <laughs> been uh, i think well, we're up to seven seven years i guess or more and it was a lot of i've done a lot of money of my own money glenn did quite a bit of cash as well and uh, we never got any of that back, and it was it was it, kind of sad, really, that it never worked because we the intention was there, and we you know certainly believed in the industry and trying to help the industry, but um, you know, yeah, something. great idea, great idea, yeah, shame though. Anyway, you never know, may happen. Yeah. All right, the Pro Audio Suite podcast. So you were kind enough to have me as a guest on recently. We were honored, honored to have you as a guest. Well, thank you. So tell me how that came about. Well, that was another funny thing because we, it was a, a guy who in Sydney, Robbo, who you, um, you've met via the, down via Source Connect now. 
Um, he and I were talking, and he got me to do some bits and pieces for a podcast he was working on. And then I said to him, oh, you know, we should do a podcast on voiceovers. Could be interesting, just got interviews and stuff like that. So we did. We started off doing a show called the VO Radio Show. And uh, and then it was uh, last Christmas. And we'd had George Widom as a guest, and we'd had Robert Marshall from Source Connect and someone in Chicago as a guest separately. And I said to Robbo, oh, you know, we should get uh, George and and Robert on just for a you know like a Christmas special bit of fun, so we did and it worked and we, we sort of got off we finished one the first record, and I said to Robo, man that that's good that really worked these good these guys are great so so I, I you know sent an email to Robert and one to George and said look are you guys interested in doing this on a regular basis and we'll just rebrand the show and make it the four of us. And uh, so they did, and it's been great. So it's not necessarily purely focused on voiceover. It's we're talking about a- anything to do with anyone who records, basically. Um, so it could be music, it could be audio post, it could be voiceover, um, anything really. And what's the website the URL? We don't have a website. <laughs> we're ve- we're very low-fi. We have we have a Facebook. Um, so and then of course we just uh, post via the um, via Libsyn, which is the the server for for the the, uh, the podcast. So uh, and otherwise find us on our Facebook, uh, which is the Pro Audio Suite Podcast Facebook. I know we should we should have a URL. Well, that way you can also get a feed to all the services as well, all the streaming services. Yeah. So it will expand your distribution a lot. Yeah which is what we need to do. In fact, I've been talking to someone about doing exactly that. And you don't need to go mad either. Um, no, I think, no. I think uh, WordPress works perfectly with Libsyn for the RSS feed. Well, it has for me. Yeah. So uh, for what it's worth, my podcast was a lark too, to be honest with you, the way it started. But it's actually built into something that's uh, quite surprising. Yeah. Well, yours is huge. You're getting big numbers, aren't you? More than I ever expected. Let's put it like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's amazing. It's funny. I because I, I came across you as I mentioned on our podcast. Uh, I think the first time I saw you was with Warren Hewitt. Oh yeah, and he's produced like a pro thing. That's gone nuts as well. He's doing really well. Yeah. So he's done very well with it. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Last question, Andrew. A little off the subject, but since you are working for yourself. You probably are more in touch with this question than most people, especially people that are working for the man, so to speak. Yep. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received from somebody or maybe you learned along the way? Uh, the simplest one of all is learn to listen. I reckon that's the key. If you, if you listen, you're going to win. Simple, but to the point. I love it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. It, and it works with everything. Learn if you learn could, by listening. It could be listening to the environment you're working in, listening to the person who's directing you. Um, listen to people who talk uh, like yourself. I mean, I listen to what you have to say about. In fact, one of your shows, the one with Paul Ill, where you talked about um, social media. Listening to the intro where you talked about how you use social media. That's brilliant. You know that that works perfectly, and that's I will adopt that. And that was all about listening to what you had to say. I'm pleased I could offer some useful help. Sage advice, I think they call it. 
<laughs> you can find out more about Andrew at andrewpetersvo.com. Andrewpeters, B-E-T-E-R-S, V-O, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>